Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the final message of our series, Women of Redemption, and it comes from our Christmas candlelight evening services. Thanks for joining us, and without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. I'd like to take a few moments today to, um, to again, think about something as far as a message about God's Word. You know, we're seeing about these things, uh, you know, for many of us, if we're raised in the church, we, we kind of have certain traditions that we kind of associate with Christmas. Uh, you know, for music, we kind of expect that we come and we're going to sing certain Christmas carols or uh, we anticipate that at the end we've got to, we're going to light the candles and have the candlelight service. Even some we expect. You know, I was even talking with Cody about, yeah, do you remember that one Christmas Eve where we tried something other than Silent Night when we lit the candles? And he's like, oh yeah, I remember that. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, we never heard the end of that one. You're like, so, so, so guess what we're going to sing tonight at the end when we light the candles? I mean, we learned that one. And there's certain maybe ideas that we expect even in the message. I mean, we expect to hear the familiar story of Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem and the baby in the manger and wise men coming to, to see Jesus. And, and, and those are all part of the Christmas story, but, but there's actually more to the story as well. You know, one of the things that we've been looking at at our church on Sunday mornings is the idea that when you look at Matthew and his, his story of Jesus' life, before he begins that point, when he actually is going to tell some about the angel coming to Joseph and about the wise men, but before he gets there, he begins his story by talking about Jesus' genealogy. Now, now that seems pretty strange to us. I mean, we, we look at it and we say, you know, you know, why would you, you know, do a genealogy? Well, there are a couple reasons. I mean, one of the reasons was that Matthew was trying to make it clear that this was a true story that was rooted in, in history and in fact. And so he didn't begin his story by saying, you know, uh, once upon a time or, you know, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. No, he started by saying, okay, let me tell you about Jesus' genealogy, tracing back 2,000 years from one to the other. And, and part of that was showing that Jesus was the fulfillment of these prophecies that said that the Messiah would be from the line of Abraham and from the line of David. But there's also another reason that Matthew began his story this way. And it's, and it's something that becomes evident when we look at the more unusual parts about the genealogy. You see, the genealogies were generally very, were patriarchal. They would just talk about the father to the son. And, uh, and generally, even Matthew's is mostly patriarchal, but five times he makes an exception. Five times he includes the names of the mothers as well. Now, this is strange because the women aren't supposed to be there at all. And, and every time that you have a woman in there, it's, it's in a sense God's way of saying, you know, this is highlighted, this is bolded. I, I want you to look at not only this woman, I want you to look at their story. Notice me in a sense, it's saying. And we've got to say, okay, why, why is he putting these here? And what's interesting is when you look at these women, four of them are, are women that, you know, were generally associated with scandals. They were not people that you would want to be in your family tree. All of them didn't measure up in one way or another to the Jewish law. And, and you're, here you have Matthew saying, no, they're included in Jesus' family tree. They're part of Jesus' story because they're telling us something about who Jesus was in his story. He's telling us about the way that God worked all the way back when the Messiah was prophesied. They're telling us this idea that, you know, Jesus' genealogy illustrates something about the meaning and the purpose of, of who Jesus was, about his life and his message. 
And so who are these women? They're women that uh, one where again, were associated with some kind of scandal. So women like Tamar and, and hers is a really sordid story or, or, or Rahab often referred to as Rahab the prostitute. And, or, you, or you have uh, an outsider like Ruth, you know, somebody that was an outsider and, and from a despised racial group or, or you have David and Bathsheba, the, the worst scandal of all. All of them didn't measure up to the Jewish law one way or another. And, and what it's saying is that the whole story of, of Jesus Christ is that he takes people who don't measure up to the law and he makes them right. He makes them part of their family, not based on their performance, but based on grace, even celebrates the relationship with him. Because the story of the gospel is not one of religion. It's not where we try hard enough. It's not us trying to be good enough. No, the Bible teaches that you can never be good enough to earn God's favor. We're all sinners. You know, if we were to stand before God based on our own merit, our own merit, you know, we all fall short of God's standard. The Bible's clear on that. And we see that again here in this genealogy. See that when we look at the so- stories associated with each one of these women, the ones that are highlighted, it's telling us that, no, this was not Jesus coming to say, here are rules to live by, here are, you know, here are suggestions, here's the way to, to, to you know, live a better life. See, the gospel is not that we somehow work our way towards God and give him a good record and then he accepts us based on that. The gospel is about Jesus Christ coming into the world to bring us salvation through his death on the cross, where he took our sins upon himself, the punishment for our sins, so that all who believe in him could be made right through faith in Jesus. It's all about grace. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. Because while you can never be good enough to earn God's favor, the Bible also teaches you can never be bad enough to keep you from God's grace. And that's part of the story of Christmas. That's why Matthew begins his gospel this way. And, And we look at the family tree. It tells us all along, the Bible story has always been God accepting people, choosing people based on grace, the, the unworthy, the, the sinners, the, the ones that were marginalized by the rest of the culture. Now, those are the first four of the women. The fifth one is the one that is most familiar with us. It's the one we expect to talk about on Christmas Eve, and that's Mary. In Matthew 1.16, at the end of that genealogy, we read, And Jacob was a father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Now, some of us might look at that and say, okay, well, those were the other four, and Mary doesn't fit in with those other stories. I mean, Mary was one of the great heroes of the Bible, right? I mean, you know, didn't God choose her because of her saintly character? And especially for those of us that maybe have a Roman Catholic background, you know, we look at that and we were ta- told to revere Mary as one of the greatest people ever born. So let me take a, a few moments just to kind of step back from tradition and even religion and say, what does the Bible say about Mary? Who was Mary? Now, just in case I'm making you nervous, I'm not going to suggest that Mary was in any way associated with any kind of scandal. That's not what the Bible teaches. But there is a reason that she's included here with these other, her story is associated with these other stories, with these other women. See, Mary and all these other women are similar in one way. And that's the common theme of all of that is grace. God chose to save and use people based on his grace, not on their performance. And and what we see with Mary, in the same way like all the other women in the line of Jesus, God chose Mary, he saved Mary, he chose to use her, not based on the good that she had done, but based on his grace. So who is Mary? Mary. What do we know from the Bible? 
But what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at a very traditional Christmas uh, passage, Luke chapter 1, where the angel appears to Mary. And, and let's see what we can see. What does it teach us about who she was? And there might be some things that are a little surprising. Well, let me go there. You have this on the screen. I'm going to go and read from Luke 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, of the, angel, uh, sixth month the angel Gabriel uh, was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now we read that and, and we say there's some, some things that are there. So often, maybe many of us, we've heard this story many times and there's some details that we kind of get so familiar with that we don't pay that much attention to. So let's, let me pull out a few things. Okay, first of all, if you look at um, near the beginning, we're told that she was from the town of Nazareth. And um, now here's what you need to realize. We have historical records that tell us a little bit about this town. It was a tiny little rural town. Uh, they estimate the population was probably between 100 to 200 people. Now you think about that, that's significantly smaller than the number of people we have in the room right now. Okay, that's a tiny little town. And, and, and I know a little bit about that. Actually, my wife, Sandy, she was raised in a town only slightly bigger than Nazareth. She was raised in a town of 250 people in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And, um, and Sandy would agree with me on this. Nothing of great historical significance has ever happened in Isabella, Michigan. I mean, it's just kind of a place that you just, people don't even know about. I mean, Sandy was raised there. That's significant, but that's other than that, you know, just... Um, now, historically, too, because she was not only a woman, but from this tiny little town, it's safe to, uh, to conclude that she was almost certainly illiterate. illiterate. Now, now, we can't know that for sure, but what we do know is that very few men in that time were formerly educated, and almost no women were. And then when you add to that, this was a, a small, poor town. There were no schools of any kind. There wouldn't have been teachers. So she almost certainly was illiterate. And not only that, but then we're told in verse 27 that she was betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, we read that and we kind of get an idea, but, but when's the last time you used the word betrothed? You know, it's just, I mean, that's not a word that we use. We're not quite sure what it means. Well, it's, it's similar to the idea of engagement, but it's also different. So when we have a couple that's engaged to be married, but the difference was that it was far more binding. You see, generally for them, their weddings were actually in two parts. Often the weddings, the you know, marriages were arranged by the parents and the, and the uh, relationship became official at a first ceremony where they would exchange vows and, and this was the betrothal. They would be considered married to each other, but they would not leave, live together. They would not sleep together. 
and that would go for a year, and it was a time for them to prove their purity and their faithfulness until the wedding date. And then at the wedding date, they would come and they would celebrate the wedding, and they would consummate it, and, and they were fully married. But the fact here that we're told that she was betrothed tells us something significant about her. Because at that time in that culture, girls were generally given an engagement or betrothal between 12 and 14 years of age, and then married between 13 and 15 years of old age. Now, now consider this, this historical picture of Mary, and, and, and what you see is maybe it disagrees with a little bit of what we sometimes see traditionally through art or maybe even some of our religious backgrounds. You know, when we think of this, we, I think of art. Just think of some of the pictures that we see in art. You'd often have Mary that, that she's there, and it's usually an older woman. You know, she's dressed well. Sometimes she even has a, you know, um, a crown of some kind, and she's holding this perfect baby, and people around her, or, or other pictures, they might take that, that they always seem to keep the idea of age. So she's always older, but instead of a crown, now she's got a halo, and, and they got this perfect baby who's got a strangely mature-looking face, you know, kind of like an adult face. It's kind of a weird face. I don't think that's, I, I, I don't know why they did that, but see, or we may even mentally have this picture and say, oh, Mary, she was a Bible scholar. She had probably memorized half of the Bible, and the reality was she was from a tiny town, poor town. She was probably illiterate, a young teenager. Uh, she's, you know, probably 13 or 14 years old, and and if you think about it, there's not anything necessarily wrong with this picture, except if you have this picture of her being this mature scholar, this leader that, that had earned her place, that had earned based on her performance, that God said, okay, I'm, I'm going to use you because you're a leader. No, she's only, again, 13 or 14 years old. She's a middle schooler bar day, and she's living under the authority of her parents. And, you know, she, she's not old enough to have done anything yet. Now, that becomes even more clear when you look at the angel's words to Mary. Let me go to verse uh, 28 of Luke 1, and look what the angel said. He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and he will call his name Jesus. Now here's the part of that I want to draw out. When the angel comes to her and greets her, he says, greetings, O favored one. Now, what does that mean? Now, what's he talking about here? And it's actually the same word that he says a couple verses later when he says, you have found favor with God. Now, now the way that many of us have understood this in the past is the angel is coming saying, don't be afraid, Mary, you have earned God's favor. You know, you've lived such a life, a wonderful life that God has chosen you for this special task. And you've proven that you're worthy. And that's one of the reasons that I think many of the pictures of art show this older, more mature woman. Because if we have this idea that, you know, that she earned it, she had to be older. She had to have performed. She had to have done something. But what does it mean? What is this word? You know, here's, an ex here's a place where some, and it doesn't happen often, but where you have an English translation of the word, and it can give us a misconception, almost a wrong idea of actually what's being said. You know, when he says, you know, oh, favored one, you have found favor. Um, think of, when's the last time anyone said favored one? You might, you know, oh, favored one. Have any, has anybody called you that? Have you called anybody that? Again, we don't speak that way. Now, we use the word, we just use a different form of the word. Right? We don't say favored one, we say, she's my favorite. Now, think about how we use that term. 
You know, when we say that someone's a favorite, it's usually a designation that's earned. You know, so we'll say, she's my favorite, and right away we follow it with, because. She's my favorite because she works so hard, or she has a great sense of humor, whatever it would be. It's almost always associated with something that the person has done. An example of this, you think of teachers in schools. I mean, you talk to a teacher, and every year I'll talk to teachers, and, oh, you know, we'll talk, who's your favorite student? Oh, here's my favorite student, or I've got a couple favorite students. And they always tell you who is the favorite and why. Now, when I was a child, I was never the favorite, you know. Um, you know, as a little, as, when I was a young boy, I mean, I was super ADHD, hyperactive, and that was back in the day before they were diagnosing everyone ADHD, and back in the day before they had medications, I was kind of the wild one. I was the one that, you know, they had a hard time controlling. And because of that hyperactivity, I, you know, I was never the highly favored child. Um, now, they will tell you if you are the highly favored child. They generally don't tell you if you're the highly dreaded child. I might have been that. I don't know. They never told me. Uh, but, I, but I'm sure I wasn't easy. And now, why is that? Because it's something that is earned or something that you kind of earn the, the negative de de designation. Now here's what you need to realize. The idea of Mary being favored of God is not at all this idea. It's not something that was earned. In fact, the word that is translated favored is actually the same word, Greek word, that we usually translate grace. It means to grace, to honor, to favor, but it's always an emphasis on what is freely given, not what is earned. So when we think about Mary, Mary's favor before God was not an earned favor, but God's favor that was given by grace by unmerited favor, by God's, you know, gift. So the meaning of the angel's words isn't God has chosen you because you've earned this, but God has chosen to show you his favor for the special task because of his grace. In spite of the fact that you're, you know, 13-year-old from nowhere that hasn't done anything yet. Now you might be asking, you know, why is this important? We're talking about words here. Well, here's why it's vital. Because the emphasis isn't on earning God's reward, but God's grace. Mary had found God's grace. And this is the word that describes how we're saved. It's the word that describes the whole message of Jesus, of the gospel, of the, of the New Testament. And when we look at that, you know, how was Mary saved? By grace. She was chosen by grace. It's the same of, for all of us who become followers of Christ. We're chosen to be recipients of grace. God's favor is upon us. And so whether we're somebody like Mary or Rahab the prostitute or Tamar or people, no matter what the background, it's not whether we've earned it, it's by grace. And that's the message of Christmas, a message of the whole Bible. You think about Mary, why did Mary, God choose Mary? I mean, she could have chosen the old mature, he could have chosen, you know, somebody that was from wealthy or an educated woman or somebody that was from the priestly class, but he said, no, I choose Mary because that's my grace. And that's different than religion. The spirit of religion is all about what we do. It's about how do we perform? How do we earn God's favor? And, and so we're trying harder. And if we mess up, we feel like we're isolated from God. But God says, no, I'm going to take nobodies from nowhere and I'm going to give them my love. I'm going to choose to use them. And, and I'm going to give significance and purpose so that I use the most unlikely for the greatest things ever. So then we say, well, if I don't earn it, then how do I get it? See, because again, we know that we're separated from God by sin. We know that we're not good enough if it's by merit. So then how do I somehow get God's favor? And our only hope is not from what we do, but it's faith in Jesus Christ that he gives us by, you know, as a gift, by grace. 
Many of you might know John 3, 16, you know, very familiar passage. What does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave, that's the message of Christmas, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And what are we called to do? We're called to believe. We're called to accept this gift of grace that God has given us. And so no matter who you are, no matter what your background, you see, the story of Christmas is the story about God coming to earth to pursue a relationship with you. Not based on what you've done. It's not for the good people or the people that have performed. It's not based on anything that you've done or haven't done. It's based on grace. And so if you're a person like Rahab the prostitute who's scarred by the past, or if you're an outsider like Ruth, or, or you know, if you failed in some way like a David and a Bathsheba, or if you're no one from nowhere, like Mary, that no one notices and you think they have nothing to offer, or even if you're a good person that hasn't messed up and you just know, you know, how do, I, how, do I, how do I get right with God? It's not by performance. It's God pursuing a relationship with you by grace. The message of Christmas is Jesus Christ came. God came to human, uh, and became, took on human flesh, came down so that he would eventually die on the cross take our sins upon himself so that all who believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. He invites you into that family. He invites you into relationship with him. Have you ever received that? I hope you have. And if you haven't, he invites you to do that today. If you have, then, and sometimes you wander away and you say, but does he really love me? And, and, but I messed up here. Again, understand that God calls you into that relationship. He wants, intimate, he wants you to be part of the family, not based on what you've done, but based on your acceptance of what he has done for you. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.